Tonight we conclude our study of Paul's epistle to the Colossians. And we have three more verses to look at as we conclude this epistle from the Apostle Paul. An epistle that, as we have said more than once, is called the most Christ-centered epistle in Scripture because he exalts the Christ encountering the Colossian heresy, as it is uh, so often called, that threatened the church at Colossae. A heresy that involved a contention that deity cannot directly be in contact with humanity, and therefore Christ could not have been God in the flesh, that there had to be a series of angelic beings through, uh, through whom we approach the Heavenly Father, and that ultimately humanity gains contact to deity through that fashion. All of this was, of course, uh, non-biblical, uh, anti-scriptural, and opposed to the clear truth that Christ is complete. Uh, we're complete in Him, Colossians 2, verse 10. And so he exalts the Christ in countering this Colossian heresy that in part dealt with that which we have just described, a Gnostic idea, but also it had pagan uh, elements to it as well as some Judaistic elements. And Paul counters... Uh, those elements, sometimes uh, specifically addressing them, but in general exalting uh, the Christ and that we are complete in him. As he completes his epistle, he is sending greetings to the church at Colossae from uh, many of the brethren who are with him at this time, uh, most of whom we dealt with uh, last time. But tonight we're looking at the last three Verses, and we're going to particularly concentrate after we make a few comments about these last few individuals whom Paul mentions here in these last verses. We're basically going to concentrate on three words with which he uh, concludes uh, this epistle before he uh, gives his characteristic greeting of grace be with you, amen. And those three words are significant, very poignant and powerful words. Remember my chains. But before we get to those three words and that plea, if you will, from the Apostle Paul and some things that we can draw from that plea, go back with me to verse 16 and see Paul's uh, encouragement and admonition that when this epistle is read among you, see that it is read also in the church of the Laodiceans. And, of course, we remember the church at uh, Laodicea, which uh, at this time was uh, an active uh, congregation and one that uh, Paul had a great deal of interest in, in terms of addressing them and strengthening them. But when the Lord, through the Apostle John, uh, wrote to them or spoke to them through John's uh, Revelation letter, the church at Laodicea had some very uh, significant uh, difficulties, spiritually speaking. And they were at a point then when, though they thought themselves to be in good shape spiritually, they were anything but. Uh, as the uh, uh, writer John writes what the Lord uh, writes to uh, them, and that is that they were neither hot nor cold, but uh, lukewarm. And because they were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, he said, I will spew you or vomit you out of my mouth. A very graphic expression about the Lord's uh, extreme distaste for the attitude that existed in the uh, Laodicean church at the time that the Revelation letter was written. But it is to this church at Laodicea that Paul wants this epistle from the Colossians to be read. 
And it simply reminds us that the New Testament epistles were circulated among various congregations. He also says, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. Now, what is the epistle from Laodicea? As we open our New Testaments, we do not find Paul's epistle to the Laodiceans. Uh, Was there a letter to the Laodiceans that has not been preserved by the uh, providence of God? We certainly have to believe that God, through his wonderful providence, has indeed preserved everything that we need because the Scripture itself makes that assertion, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. And so we know and have the complete assurance that everything we need we have here in Scripture. Was the letter to the Laodiceans something that was not preserved because it is uh, of a specific nature, one that... uh, would not be uh, pertinent for all time to come, and therefore God in his providence did not preserve it. That is a a possibility according to some. But there are many who think that the epistle from Laodicea was not an epistle directly addressed to the Laodiceans, but that it in fact was the letter to the Ephesians, which was delivered at the same time the Colossian letter was. And since it was characteristic for these epistles to be circulated among the congregations, there is some speculation, and that's all it is because we cannot uh, be uh, certain about that, but that the church uh, at Laodicea received uh, also the letter to Ephesus and that those uh, congregations circulated those letters. We do know for a fact that that was a practice. We know that from, uh, from here because he's saying here there are two letters involved and he wants both churches to have access to those letters. So therefore, we know they were circulated. And it may very well be that the epistle from Laodicea to which Paul refers was the Ephesian letter because as we've noted there are a great deal uh, of similarities great many similarities between the two but there is some greater elaboration in one versus the other on certain topics and it may have been that Paul wanted to make sure that both congregations had access to both the uh, Colossian epistle and the um, Ephesian epistle but we cannot be certain as to the identity of the epistle from Laodicea. And then he mentions in verse 17, Archippus, and say to Archippus, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. A word of encouragement to a man named Archippus. Uh, Who was he? Well, if we turn to the uh, uh, letter to Philemon, uh, the short letter that Paul wrote to Philemon, there is uh, some indication here that Archippus may have been uh, Philemon and Apphius' son, at least the way the wording is given in verses 1 and 2 of the Philemon epistle. Listen to them. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, to the beloved Apphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church uh, in your house. The church in your house. So, The way this is worded, to the beloved Apphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Philemon, Apphia, his wife, and Archippus, perhaps their son. We cannot be absolutely certain that that was the case, but the way that uh, letter to Philemon begins, it gives some fairly strong indication that perhaps uh, that was the case. But whoever Archippus was, whether he was of the family of Philemon, he was one who had 
who had taken on uh, a ministry for the Lord uh, that he had received from the Lord, as Paul puts it here, and he encourages him to fulfill it. There's no indication from this word of encouragement that Archippus had a problem and that he was failing to fulfill his mission and that Paul was correcting him. Um, in fairness to Archippus, there's nothing in this admonition that would indicate that. It's just simply uh, an exhortation, uh, a word of encouragement. And uh, it simply reminds us that preachers uh, need encouragement and that we do need to encourage one another. Not just preachers, but elders need encouragement. Uh, they certainly need the support of the membership and words of encouragement and expressions of encouragement uh, to uh, fulfill the work that they have given themselves to do. And that's um, what the Apostle Paul is doing here. And then he finishes this salutation by my own hand, Paul. In other words, he is writing these few words with his own hand. It was Paul's custom to use an amanuensis or a secretary, if you will, uh, to pen the epistles uh, that were obviously uh, from Paul by inspiration, but he adds some authenticity to this epistle by signing with his own hand. And it's been speculated that this would indicate that the Colossians had had face-to-face -face contact with the Apostle Paul. There were some, you remember, earlier in, early in our uh, study, uh, he had uh, uh, sent greetings to those that he had not, uh, had not seen face-to-face, -face, and that uh, there were some who speculated that because he worded that as he did early in the epistle, that he had never seen the Colossians, never been there. But as we noted at that point, an expression like that, those who have not seen my face, would not necessarily in, uh, indicate all the Colossians, but simply those uh, who had been added to the Lord's body since he had seen the Colossians. It would not necessarily indicate he'd never seen any of the Colossians. And now when he signs this epistle with his own hand, it has been said that why would he sign it with his own hand to authenticate that this was from Paul if they had no recognition of his signature and had no contact with him. So it may be a further indication that the Apostle Paul indeed had seen many of the Colossian brethren face to face. But now we come to, after we note that he ends with grace be with you, amen, going back to these three words with which we want to spend the remainder of our time tonight. What does Paul mean when he says, remember my chains? Those are three words that we dare not overlook. They are filled with meaning. And of course, uh, they specifically indicate that he was in chains, obviously, at this time. Uh, the Colossian letter is one of the prison epistles. But what do we get from remember my chains? Is the Apostle Paul suggesting that I want you to uh, remember my chains so that you realize just how pitiful I am and what a condition I am in, and I want you to... Uh, uh, to really feel sorry for me. That's my purpose here for calling upon you to remember my chains. Uh, no, we can be assured that that was not the case. How can we know that? Because we see so much of, all, of Paul's writings and Paul's actions that clearly show that he was unselfish in his attitude, that he was not concerned about how others were viewing his pitiful condition. He was obviously and at all times more concerned about the condition of others. Remember my chains. Let's think for a few moments about some things about which these chains should remind us. I believe the chains should remind us of our 
Commission. As we think about his chains, we can think about the fact that Paul was chained at this time, chained to uh, guards there in his uh, situation being a prisoner of Rome. He was chained because of his commission to carry the gospel to the whole world in his time and his determination to do that. And it's our commission in our time as well. And so as we remember his chains, we need to remember that he was chained because of his commission, the commission that had been given to him and thus to all of us for as long as time stands by the Lord himself. I realize that that commission was initially given to the apostles, but I also understand and appreciate, as I hope you do, that that commission is valid for as long as time stands, and that is to take the gospel to every creature. Matthew 28, 18 through 20. The Lord came to them and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them into the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Mark 16, 15, and 16. He came to them and said, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Luke's account of that great commission. He said to them, Thus it was necessary for Christ, uh, thus it is written, and thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name to all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. Those accounts of the Great Commission are indeed accounts of the Great Commission, the current commission, the commission for which the Apostle Paul found himself in chains. And it is the commission that is still current with us and will be for as long as time stands. That gospel is unchangeable. Its power is unchanged. We live in a time where people all around us are saying, <clears throat> just the preaching of the gospel is not sufficient. We need social programs. We need to, uh, we need to supplement. We need to augment. We need to, uh, we need to change with the changing times. No, the gospel is unchanged. And Paul reminded the Galatian brethren in that epistle which we're studying on Sunday morning now, that he marveled that, that they were so soon removing from him who called them in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, he said, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and would pervert the gospel of Christ. And then he said, but though we or an angel from heaven should preach any gospel unto you other than that which we preached unto you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any gospel to you other than that which you received, let him be accursed. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it singularly is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. It is that same powerful, unchangeable gospel that we must preach based upon the realization that the commission for which Paul was in chains is our commission and will be our commission as long as there is breath in our bodies. Remember my chains should remind us of that commission. And that expression should also remind us of the church and the importance of the church and our willingness to suffer for the church as Paul was doing at the time that he penned these words. He had suffered and was suffering because of the church, because the church was his life, and the church must be our life as well. You remember in Acts chapter 20, verse 28 and following, as he reviewed his work among those Ephesian elders, as he called them to himself there at Miletus, 
and admonish them to take heed to themselves and to all the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. He purchased the church with his own blood. And in Ephesians, the letter that was delivered at the same time this Colossian epistle was delivered at chapter 5 of that epistle, he used the husband-wife relationship beginning at verse 25 to demonstrate and to illustrate just how precious and important the church of our Lord is and that the husband should nourish and cherish the wife as the Lord does the church. Paul loved the church. He put the kingdom first. He was willing to suffer and, yes, even to die for the church. When you go back to that passage to which we alluded a moment ago in Acts chapter 20, beginning there at verse uh, 28, he reminded them in that context of how he had served the Lord with all humility, how he had kept back nothing that was helpful but proclaimed it uh, to them. But look at over in verse uh, 22 of that same chapter. And see, he's, he's speaking to the elders now at Ephesus, at Miletus. Now I go bound in the spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. He'd been warned about it. He knew it was coming. And then verse 24, but none of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself, so that I may finish my race with joy and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. I don't count my life dear to myself. My determination, he said, is to finish my race with joy. You know, we've asked before as we've looked at that statement, how does a man who has just said, I'm willing to die, and I know that that perhaps awaits me at Jerusalem, but I'm determined to finish my race nonetheless, even if that does happen, with what? With joy? With joy? How is someone joyful who knows that he may, may, may very well be called upon to die for the Lord? Because he was in the Lord. And as he himself admonished on more than one occasion in the Philippian letter especially, we can rejoice and should rejoice in the Lord. And if we're called upon to suffer for that cause, for the cause for which the Lord shed his blood and the church for which he died, then we do so with joy. Remember my change should remind us not only of his commission and ours, but of the preciousness of the church. Seek first the kingdom of God, that's the church, and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you. But the statement, remember my chains, also reminds us of his commitment and what our commitment should be. Because when we see Paul in this condition and the commitment that he still maintained, it's a stark reminder that commitment does not does not depend on circumstances. No matter what the circumstances are, the commitment must still be the same. And that's what the Apostle Paul reminds us of here as he is in this Roman prison. You remember back in the Philippian letter, chapter 4 and verse 11, he said, Not that I speak in regard to need, for in whatever state I am, I have learned to be content. In whatever state I am, I have learned to be content. Content in any state and committed in every circumstance. 
gets us back to Acts 20, 22 through 24. I know the Holy Spirit testifies that tribulations await me in Jerusalem, but I'm willing not only to undergo that, but I'm willing to sacrifice my life to finish my course, my ministry with joy. That's commitment. Commitment that does not vary with changing circumstances. But Paul's chains also remind us of courage, and that's closely related to that commitment in that he had courage in the face of death, and he wanted others to take courage from his chains. And I believe that's the basic thrust of this expression, remember my chains. You remember my chains, and you take courage from that. Don't pity me, but allow my condition to be motivational to you, that I am determined to finish my course with joy, and you determine to finish yours as well. But finally, the chains remind us of conversion. They remind us of genuine conversion. We talked about this uh, somewhat in Bible class this morning about Paul's conversion. Was it genuine? Did he hallucinate there on the Damascus Road and just uh, think that he saw what he saw? No. No, indeed. It was genuine. Paul's conversion was genuine. Would he have suffered for a false cause? Would he have suffered as he did, knowing that the very cause for which he was suffering was false and that he, uh, he was uh, living a lie? Certainly not. It was genuine. We mentioned this morning in Bible class that uh, J.W. McGarvey had said that Paul's conversion is one of the greatest statements, one of the greatest proofs about the validity of Christianity based on what he saw there on the Damascus Road, based on what he didn't see as he was struck blind, and then based upon what he sacrificed thereafter, all the way to dying for the cause of Christ. He sacrificed so much. His conversion was genuine. Second Corinthians chapter 11, as he on that occasion, as he did in the Galatian letter, defended his apostleship against those who were questioning his apostleship. He asked in verse 22 of that chapter, Are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews five times I received forty stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils of the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. Paul wasn't bragging, Paul was defending. But he said, if they think that I am not a genuine apostle, then think about what I have been willing 
to suffer for the cross of Christ. Paul's conversion was genuine. Does a man go through all of that knowing that he's living a lie? Of course not. His sacrifice was indeed tremendous. But he did it with joy because he truly was converted. So as we think about this expression tonight, near the very end of this great epistle, remember my chains. Let that expression remind us of our commission, of the church, of our commitment, of our courage that we should manifest, and that truly we must be converted, and that if we are truly converted, then indeed we recognize that whatever comes, we can endure because of being in Christ. Paul's chains were in Christ. That was the key. Philippians 1, 12 through 14. Listen to these words. But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. That's how we know that when Paul said, remember my chains, he wasn't having a pity party. He was saying, you be emboldened by my chains. You be encouraged by my chains. You be even bolder to live for Christ and to speak for Christ. Grace be with you. Amen. He closes this epistle. Grace can be with us and will be with us as he wished it for the Colossians if indeed we are where they were at the time he wrote this epistle to them. And that is in Christ. Oh yes, they were threatened, but they were Christians and he wrote to them encouraging them to continue in that grace into which they had been received by the Lord upon their reception of that gift of his grace. How did they do it? The same way we must do it tonight. And that is by a belief in Jesus as the Christ and that we can be complete in him as this epistle tells us. But that we can't be complete out of him at all. If we're complete in him, then out of him we're incomplete, obviously. And the only way to be complete in him is by a belief in him that leads us to repent of our sins, confess him as the Christ, and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you haven't done those things, we plead with you to do that tonight. And if you have, but you know that you have not kept focused on your commission and on the church and all of these things that we have talked about this evening and that your life has not reflected that you are in Christ, that you'll come home tonight in repentance and confession of whatever sin needs to be confessed publicly, that we may pray with you and for you to the God of heaven who loves and will forgive. As we stand to sing, please come.